Let's turn for our reading from the Word of God this evening to the prophecy of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 43, and we read from the beginning of the chapter. But now this is what the Lord says. He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt for your ransom, Cush and Seba in your stead. Since you are precious and honored in my sight, and because I love you, I will give men in exchange for you and people in exchange for your life. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. I will bring your children from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Lead out those who have eyes but are blind, who have ears but are deaf. All the nations gather together and the peoples assemble. Which of them foretold this and proclaimed to us the former things? Let them bring in their witnesses to prove they were right, so that others may hear and say, It is true. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor will there be one after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and apart from me there is no Saviour. I have revealed and saved and proclaimed I am not some foreign God among you. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, that I am God. Yes, and from ancient days I am he. No one can deliver out of my hand when I act. Who can reverse it? The Apostle Paul, writing in 2 Timothy 3, verse 16, tells us that all Scripture is God breathed. Very vivid expression he uses. Every word of scripture is, as it were, breathed out by God. And so, as Paul tells us, it's all useful. Different passages, of course, are useful for different purposes. Uh, Paul lists some of them for teaching, for rebuking, correcting, uh, training in righteousness. No part of God's word is without its value. Uh, We need to be careful that we don't devalue any part of Scripture. Now, one task of the pastor is to understand how to use Scripture in the range of situations that he has to address. There'll be situations perhaps he has experienced himself that he's gone through There'll be other situations he deals with where 
he may well hope he never does find himself in that situation and never goes through that experience. But one of the needs that perhaps more often than any other is encountered is encouragement of God's people. Either when they are facing the prospect of a time of trial or they're actually in the midst of it and they need encouragement. And the ministry of encouragement is of tremendous importance. Not only, of course, pastors here to be encouragers, but we have a special role in that regard. It's a vital part of any pastoral ministry. Out of the many possible portions of Scripture that could be chosen in those situations to encourage someone facing trials in the midst of trials, some will maybe stand out more than others. There are verses, perhaps, that your mind turns to more quickly than others. It may reflect your own personal reasons, your own experience, perhaps the help you have seen those passages to be to, to somebody else who has been struggling. I don't want to turn to one of those passages uh, this evening, one perhaps uh, I've read to some of you, uh, one perhaps I will read to some of you someday, one to which I often turn in those kinds of testing circumstances. I want to look this evening at Isaiah 43 uh, and verses 1 to 3, the first part of uh, verse 3, and we're thinking of passing through the waters. Read there in Isaiah 43. But now this is what the Lord says, He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Passing through the waters. Three things just very Simply, we see in these verses, all of them significant. The first is the call, the call. The passage is addressed, as you can see there, to Jacob, uh, to Israel, the very first verse. To the people of God, in other words. God is speaking to his people. In the first instance, of course, in its setting here in the book of Isaiah, These words have in view Israel as a nation, particularly probably with the exile in view. These are words that will be addressed to Israel when they're in exile in Babylon and God's going to bring them back to their own land. That's the kind of historical setting after Isaiah's day, but words that will be exactly right for the people in those circumstances. Words that are spoken, as you'll see there, by the Lord. And who is he? Well, he is the one, he says, who created you. He created these people as surely as he created the universe. As not thinking just of their physical creation, but we might say their recreation as the people of God. Because he goes on, I have redeemed you. That tells you 
the kind of creating that is in view here. It's recreating, spiritually giving them life as the people of God. I've redeemed you. This, of course, is the God who brought Israel out of bondage in Egypt. The same God who would bring them out of exile in Babylon and restore them to their own land. I have summoned you by name. That's an expression in Scripture that really refers to God's choice of these people to be his people. It's a language of election. God knows these people. He has chosen them to be his. There's nothing random about them being part of the people of God. It's not some kind of a fluke. God himself has summoned them, called them by name. He knows them personally. And what's the result of that call of God, that choice of these people? Well, he tells them, you are mine. You are mine. What a wonderful expression. We shouldn't skip over it too quickly. You are mine, God says to them. They belong to the Lord in the bonds of the covenant that we read about so often in the Bible. God has given himself to them and he's taken them as his people. They are bound together in the covenant. They are, as the Lord puts it at Mount Sinai, Exodus 19, verse 5, my treasured possession. Again, isn't that a wonderful description of how God views his people, those he has called to be his, my treasured possession. He's called them out of the world to be his. But of course then we have to ask, these are words written for the Israelites centuries ago, many, many centuries ago, what does this statement have to say to us as as Christians today? Does it have relevance to us? Is it still applicable to us, these words that God gave so long ago? And the answer must be yes. Yes, still these words are applicable to us as the people of God. Because we are connected to the people of God in the Old Testament. Listen to Paul as he writes in Galatians 3 and verse 29. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Heirs according to the promise. We who belong to Christ are the seed of Abraham. The great promises of God, the great covenant promises, belong to us. As surely as they did to Abraham millennia ago. This is still God's word to us because the people of God are one. There's not an Old Testament people of God saved by one means and then a New Testament people of God saved by a different means. There is one people of God. Many differences between them, 
but one people, saved in one way by one Savior. And so when God addresses his people in Isaiah 43, we are quite right to take these as God's word to us. We must. He is addressing us, and the promises that we have in these verses are promises to us. We can take this as God's word spoken to us. We've experienced God's call. And in a richer, deeper, fuller way than Israel did. How is that so? Well, God says to them, he says to us, I have redeemed you. And isn't that the case? If we are believers tonight, we can say that God has redeemed us. The language of redemption is is central to salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are redeemed. To redeem is to buy with a price. And spiritually, if you're redeemed, you have been bought out of sin with a price. And what is that price? Well, we're told in 1 Peter 1, there in verses 18 and 19, Peter writes, you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. The precious blood of Christ. That is what redeems sinners like you and me. When God says, I have redeemed you, that's how he's done it. Through the work of Christ crucified and risen. There couldn't have been a higher price paid for our redemption. I have redeemed you. God also says, I have summoned you, or I have called you by name. And we said that's the language of election, of God choosing a people for himself. And all believers are chosen. They're elect. Ephesians 1, 4, uh, we are told that God chose us in Christ before the creation of the world. That sets our salvation in the big picture of God's plan and purpose. That we were, were, were chosen in Christ even before he made the world. And of course, it is apart from any goodness or any merit in us. There is nothing in us that could lead God to choose us. No goodness, nothing attractive. But so God says to us, I have redeemed you. I've called you by name. So here are words that are addressed to every believer. At whatever point in history we live, this is the word of God to us. And don't these words stress how precious and how privileged we are in Christ. For God to look on us and we know our sin and we know what we deserve, we deserve his judgment. And for God to view us in the way that we have here before us is amazing. We are precious 
to the Lord. He says to us, you are mine. You're mine. We belong to him because of what Christ has done. We're redeemed. We're called. We belong to the Lord. Precious people. Privileged people. We could not earn any of these blessings. Couldn't begin to. These are great truths on which all our comfort and our encouragement are founded. If we are thinking of passing through the waters, we need first of all to be clear, who are we? Who are we who pass through the waters? And here's the answer. We belong to the Lord. He's redeemed us and he's called us. We're precious to him. So that gives us a foundation for what follows. Because having thought of the call, we see, secondly, the trials. The trials. Note verse 2. When you pass through the waters. Perhaps we would prefer that verse to read, if you pass through the waters. But it doesn't. God says, when you pass through the waters. It's a statement of what, in one way or another, will happen. The Lord is not speaking about something that might or might not happen. If you pass through the waters, but you probably won't. No, he doesn't say that. The Lord says, when you pass through the waters, he's speaking of what, in his providence, or not in the realm of, of accident or chance, but what in his providence will come to pass. He's really, in a sense, assuring us that at some point, in some way, we'll be passing through the waters. The same as the verse goes on, when you pass through the rivers, when you walk through the fire. Different pictures, different metaphors, but all really implying the same thing. What we have here is a description of inevitable trials. Not possibilities, but certainties. They will come. We've God's word for it. Not that we're being pessimists with a gloomy outlook on life, the kind of people who are always expecting something bad to turn up. No, we are being told that what God and his providence has laid out for us will include the waters, the rivers, the fire. We might prefer it was otherwise, but it isn't and it won't be. Now, if we think of the Israelite readers who, first of all, had the book of Isaiah, the language that's used would surely recall for them episodes from Israel's history. You think of the waters and the rivers, not too difficult to think of examples from Israel's history. Crossing of the Red Sea back in Exodus 14, 
the crossing of the Jordan, entry into the Promised Land in Joshua 3. Here were situations where, both occasions, God's people seemed to be confronted with impossible obstacles. And I think that's the point there. It's not the case that, well, Israel didn't actually enter the water of the Red Sea or of the Jordan. That's not the point. The point is here were waters that one way or another had to be negotiated and that were, in human terms, overwhelming until God acted. God led them through in safety. As far as fire is concerned, we might struggle to find an example. One uh, later on, after Isaiah's day, we read about in the book of Daniel, you had Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. You have that recorded in Daniel 3. And there was a literal example of some of the people of God in the fire. But God's hand, of course, was upon them. And the language, surely, of this verse is vividly real to the Lord's people in all ages. May not be literal rivers or fire that we face, but in all kinds of ways in God's providence, we do face rivers, we face waters, we face fire. They come to us in many different ways. Many ways we have to face and endure trials. Yes, sometimes the Lord does remove a trial before we really enter into it. We reach the stage of contemplating what is ahead. Perhaps we pray earnestly that God will deliver us from it, and he does. Sometimes he does. But often he doesn't. Often he requires that we do pass through the waters and the rivers and the fire. He doesn't take away the trials. They have to be endured. Often God does permit his people to pass through very difficult and testing times. Think of Psalm 23, so precious to God's people. We'll be singing it at the end of the service, verse 4. And there the psalmist speaks about walking through the valley of the shadow of death, of the valley of deep darkness, walking through it. Given a choice, we'd prefer to walk around it. But often God does lead his people through the valley, all the way. And it shouldn't surprise us that the Lord's people do face hard times. Sometimes Perhaps we are surprised. Christians are almost taken unawares by difficulties and trials. And of course, our first question very often is, why me? But somebody has suggested perhaps the response, why not me? In God's providence, trials do come. We're not to be surprised. We're still subject, aren't we, to all the the struggles that others face. People who aren't Christians, just because you're a Christian, 
doesn't for a moment mean you will not go through many of the the hardships that everybody experiences. Uh, The brands of teaching that suggest if you just had enough faith, then everything would be smooth and easy and you wouldn't have troubles. And if you do, it's because you haven't enough faith. That's a very pernicious, uh, an unbiblical kind of teaching. No, we're told in Scripture that the different kinds of trials that have to be endured will be our lot in different respects. Maybe it is experience of illness or loss, disappointment, failure, declining faculties, unemployment, financial struggles. The list could go on and on. God's people face many kinds of of trials, and for some, it seems that the road is hard. As a pastor, inevitably, you see God's people going through hard times, sometimes, particularly later in life, and those years can be hard years. God hasn't forsaken his children, but he can lead us sometimes through deep waters and fast flowing rivers. And raging fire. The Lord has never suggested it would be easy for his people. And the different burdens that come simply because we're human beings in a fallen world, for each of us will be different. For each of us, the, the, the waters or the fire will be different. None of us will experience all of these things. We're individuals as far as our personality is concerned. Our circumstances vary. No two are absolutely identical. But the Lord assigns particular waters and rivers and fires for each of his people and his infinite wisdom and his plan and purpose. And of course, the Lord's people also face spiritual tests that others don't. And sometimes we're made particularly aware of that. There are troubles that Christians have to face uh, that really, if they weren't Christians, they wouldn't have to struggle with. There are issues of temptation and spiritual struggle, perhaps doubts or questions, spiritual depression, a range of uh, of spiritual issues that the Christian in particular has to deal with. And the issues of opposition, sometimes from within one's own family, one's own community. Uh, And for many Christians in the world, those kinds of persecution, opposition are very, very real. They're not hypothetical. They may be a day-to-day reality that has to be faced. And so as Christians, we have the, the struggles and the trials that every human being has to face. And also the particular issues that arise because we're the Lord's people. And because we are the object of Satan's interest. And his desire to bring us down. So the enemy attacks, a fallen world opposes us. 
And that is the God-ordained lot of believers. And we need to reckon with that. And not be surprised when we do face trials. The world, of course, may well try to make capital out of the struggles of Christians. And there will be those who will say, Oh, well, yes, you, you talk about your God and how he loves you. And if he does, why does he let you go through that experience, that hard time? Where's God when all of that's going on? And, of course, that too can be very oppressive and difficult to deal with, particularly in some families if it comes from those near to us. So the trials are real. They come within the providence of God and they shouldn't surprise us. But they can be hard. They can be prolonged. Sometimes it's the short, sharp trial to be faced. For others at different times, it can be the long haul. Perhaps never too severe at any one time, but it goes on and on. Different waters and rivers and fires, but real for all of God's people when you pass through. Sooner or later, one way or another, these times will come. And for some, they come back. And they come back many times. The call that tells us who we are, that we are the people of God, we belong to him, redeemed and called. And these redeemed, called people who belong to the Lord will pass through trials and hard times. But we have thirdly in these verses the assurance. The assurance. We're not left alone to struggle with the waters and the rivers. Well, if we were, we'd be overwhelmed. We would be carried away. We'd be destroyed. We'd be burnt up. You see, Christians sometimes going through deep waters. And perhaps we wonder, how do they get through? How do they keep going? And in the end, there's only one answer. And the answer is not to be found in them. It's to be found in the Lord. The Lord who here gives a very powerful assurance that when we do pass through the waters, we will not be defeated. And notice that the language of assurance that God gives us here is just as strong and unequivocal as the warnings of trials. As surely as God says trials will come, God also says you will not be overwhelmed. Both are sure Uncertain, They will not sweep over you. You will not be burned. 
are statements that are promises. Assurances from the Lord, no doubt about it. And the reason why that is the case lies not in us. It certainly does not lie in us. It lies in the Lord. I will be with you. And that is the crucial statement. That is the assurance we need. Whether we're approaching trials or we're in the midst of them. I will be with you. It's the Lord's personal presence that's crucial. Oh yes, he, he gives us strength. He gives us peace. He gives us a whole range of blessings. We thank him for them. But what is crucial is his presence with us. He doesn't simply send help. But he's there himself. What a difference. What a difference. Yes, we would be thankful when he sends help. But when he comes himself, when he is there personally. We mentioned the dark valley of Psalm 23. We need to see the precious truth that is there exactly the same as we have here in Isaiah 43. Psalmist says, I will fear no evil for you are with me. You are with me. Exactly the same truth. And there the psalmist is speaking of his own experience. Here God makes the promise, Isaiah 43. Psalm 23, the psalmist knows it in his own life. You're with me. And that's what transforms the situation. The valley is still dark. The valley doesn't go away. It's still there. And he still walks through it. But you're with me. He doesn't walk it alone. In the severest trials, our bond with the Lord is not broken. Sometimes it may feel that way. Sometimes in the rivers or in the fire it may feel God has abandoned me. Where is he? Where is he in this dark, hard time? Perhaps we can't perceive him. And those are the times we have to hold on to that conviction, that assurance that he is with us. God says, I will be with you. And we take him at his word. And we know he is with us. We can trust him. We know that nothing can separate us from his love. The end of Romans 8, the chapter builds up to a crescendo of conviction. Paul surveys the whole creation. Height, depth, angels, principalities, all that he lists there at the end of Romans 8. This conclusion, there isn't anything. There isn't anything that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
Not waters, not rivers, not fires. Nothing can separate us. And in the darkest darkness and the deepest depths, God says to his children, I will be with you. And by grace, we can say with the psalmist, you are with me. You are with me. Though perhaps at points I don't feel it. I don't perceive it at this moment. It's still true. You're with me. You see the names God uses to describe himself here. The Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. And we could look in detail at the names. We don't have time to do that. But they're names that are full of the power and the grace of God. The Lord, the the covenant God who binds himself to us in an unbreakable bond. Power and grace. He is sovereign over our circumstances. Whether it is to be a river or a fire, whatever it may be, he's sovereign. And an infinite love, he provides everything that we need. There is no lack for God's people. A psalmist sings of that too in Psalm 23. I will not want, I will lack nothing. Full provision because he loves us. And we constantly Prove that, do we not, as we cross the rivers he brings us to. As we walk through the fire that he leads us through, we prove it again and again. We know what's true, but we have to prove it when the time comes. And what are we proving? We're proving what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, God himself speaking Uh, to Paul, the assurance he gave, my grace is sufficient for you. Whatever precisely that grace is needed for, God provides it and it is sufficient. And so we are able to bear whatever he permits to come to us. If it's to be waters, if it's to be rivers, If it's to be fires, he knows. And he provides the grace that's sufficient that we are able to come through. And he doesn't let us go. And he brings us through to the place he has appointed. Having learned whatever lessons he wants us to learn. And of all making us more like the Lord Jesus Christ. When we think of the the waters and the rivers and the fires that Jesus was led through for us. Here's one who understands. And one who is able to provide the grace that we need. We don't have a saviour who knows nothing of struggles and hardships and spiritual warfare. He knows them better then you and I know them. And so he is able to give the grace that's sufficient. 
passing through the waters. The call of God that we are redeemed, we're chosen, we're elect, we're called, we belong to him. As providence, there are the trials, they will come. Different times, different ways, but they will come. But the assurance, I will be with you. And he will lead us through. And he will complete his work. And we'll be able to say his grace was sufficient. Full of encouragement. Don't be surprised. Someday if I read it to you, I may well. But it's God's word. And it's full of comfort.